Good morning. It is very good to be here with you. And as you know, our Pastor Steve is in the Czech Republic on a missions trip. So I am filling in, pinch hitting as they say. And please don't let the fact that Jeremiah sprinted to the back of the room affect your uh, anticipation at all. Many years ago, I took a journey. I decided to read through the whole Bible in a year. And the first time I read through it, I was fascinated by all that I saw in there, things that I just never knew was in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Now I decided to do that again the very next year. And then something else struck me as I read through it, especially in the Old Testament. And that was how rebellious Israel really was. I mean, every time they turned away from God, I would just throw up my hands like, I can't believe these people, after all that God had done for them. So I go back for a third year in a row. And I read through it again. And again, I'm drawn to the Old Testament. And it hits me like a ton of bricks. I am just like Israel. That was a very humbling experience. As I saw clearly how I was unfaithful, how I was inconsistent in the face of all that God had done for me. I am just like Israel. So it's no surprise I see myself in the story of Gideon. Let's take, for example, my journey from the seat to the pulpit. And I'm not talking about the short walk I just made. I'm talking about going from a person who normally just stands here to read scripture and pray to one who is preaching. Like Gideon, I was going, going about doing my job, working, serving in various ministries. I get this email from Jeff Johnson. And this email says, Pastor Steve would like to get you in the pulpit this summer. I'm like, what? He wants what? When? And my first thought was, does he have any idea what it means to stand in front of God's people and deliver a word? Does he know what it takes to prepare a sermon? And of course, he probably knows more than any of us. So, I was still in a, in a bit of a shock. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not like I never imagined it. I mean, I may have sat there and thought, okay, this is the illustration I would have used in that space. Or I might have thought, I have a favorite quote that would have fit good right there. But I never actually thought about standing and delivering the whole sermon. And then I had to think, now, if I go forward with this, am I just looking for spotlight? 
Am I trying to make a name for myself? Or is God really behind this? God sent Jeff Johnson. We prayed, read scripture, and talked about what God is doing with his people. We talked about what a weighty thing it is to stand before God's people and preach the word. We talked about what God does to you when you prepare a sermon, how he works it in so it can be brought back out. Now, the task often seemed overwhelming. I wondered at times if I could do it. Jeff continued to encourage. I pressed on. The drafts and revisions started to pile up. And I started to believe, yeah, God can do it. So I am thankful this morning that the Lord is with me. Let's pray. Father, you are the one true God. You are a faithful God who never breaks your promises. As you have been faithful with Israel, you are faithful to your church. Father, we are here to hear from you out of your word. Would you keep us from being distracted by all that occurred last week or all the things we have coming our way next week? Would you open our hearts and minds to receive your message? Would you use me this morning to accomplish your goals for your people? I am trusting your faithfulness and not my own abilities to complete the task. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the passage read by Ted this morning is from Judges 6, and it describes an interaction between God and Gideon. Now, before I get to the actual dialogue that he read, I want to cover a little history that gets us to Gideon. And then the story of Gideon itself is pretty familiar to most of you. Um, and I'll summarize that before um, I go into the dialogue. So I just kind of want to warn you, it'll be a little while before I get to the verses, okay? So let's look at how Israel and Gideon got to where we are in Judges 6. The story of Israel begins when God introduces himself to Abraham. And actually, he sends him to the land that Gideon's Israel is struggling to secure. His promise to Abraham is that he would be blessed by being the father of a great nation. Now, being the father of a great nation begins with being the father of one child. His first child was a long time coming, from a human perspective anyway. But he was right on time from God's perspective. Let me go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Nothing could prevent God's promise from being fulfilled. One brother lies to get a blessing. Eleven brothers sell the twelfth into slavery. They reunite in Egypt when the eleven brothers realize that their slave brother is now second in command. This serves to preserve the young nation during a seven-year famine. You see, 
even what men mean for evil, God can use to serve his ultimate purpose. Eventually, there's a new sheriff in town, or in our case, a new king in Egypt. He decides to enslave Israel rather than live with them. Now, out in the fields where Israel is, you can hear the chatter. If I ever get out of this mess, I will never complain again. I know nothing can be as bad as this. I'd rather sleep on the ground, in the wilderness, eating quail every day. Please, I wouldn't even need meat. Just get me out of here. So God hears their cry. Moses is called. Plagues rain down. Some firstborns die. Others are saved by the blood on the doorpost. The sea is used as a hallway and a grave. Depends on whose side you're on. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. They are so happy. Everything is going their way. Until it happened. Somebody asked that question. And parents, you know what question I'm talking about. Are we there yet? Followed by, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. You see where I'm going, right? Somebody says, we had all kinds of meat in Egypt, Moses. Why are we out here anyway? I'm tired. What's a deliverer to do? He cries out to God, of course. God provides all the sustenance his people need. He reveals himself more fully at Mount Horeb than he had ever done before. He told them who he was, how they were to worship him, and how they were to live as his people. He promised to take them to a land that was in move-in condition. They would have homes, a land already cultivated by others. All they had to do was trust God and drive out the people living there. Turns out, Israel is a rather rebellious people. They did not drive out the people who were living there. They even intermingled with them and served their gods. As God has promised, those people became thorns in their sides, and their gods were a snare to Israel. Now this brings us up to the time of Judges. This is a pretty dark time in their history. Now see, what would happen is Israel would rebel, turn away from God. God would in turn bring about the consequences of their sin. And out of this affliction, they would cry out to him for help and forgiveness. He would take pity on them, send a judge to deliver them from the oppressor and give them peace. The people would get comfortable and return to their sin. 
So that's the general pattern we see in Judges, and Gideon is the fifth of 12 Judges mentioned in the book. And so, like I said, you know the basic story. Gideon blew the trumpet to call out men from Israel to follow him. Gideon put out the fleece to know if God would really save Israel. Twice he did this. First he asked for the fleece to be wet on dry ground. Then he turned around the next day and asked for the fleece to be dry on wet ground. And God did it, both times. Now, God's plan was to make it plain that he was the deliverer and that Israel didn't save themselves. So his rescue was going to involve fewer rather than more people. At first, Gideon had 32,000 men. And God said, no, 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 no. That's way, way too many. I don't want you tempted to think this is your doing. God took just 300 of those. Now, the 300 blew the trumpets, broke the jars, cried out, and the Midianites turned to run. They even turned on each other. Now, those that weren't killed by friendly fire, the Israelites chased down. Now, our passage today is the lead-in to that Gideon story. Have you ever thought of Gideon as a role model? Have you ever heard him preached that way? As I study Gideon, I see his ups and downs. I see his unbelief, lack of faith. I see his fear. I was awed by how God used him anyway. In spite of his fear, his questioning, his asking for signs, God faithfully nurtured him into the man he would use to lead the deliverance. I can really relate to Gideon and love the fact that God can still use people like him. My goal this morning is that you come away from this time with a sense of God's faithfulness in the face of whatever circumstances you may be facing. I want you to know that his mission will be worked out in our lives and in the world, not because of who we are, not because of what we have or haven't done, but because of who he is and what he has done and what he will do. Okay, now let's turn to the passage. In verse 11. <clears throat> now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, the Midianites here are God's tool to discipline Israel. They appear to be more like a very large terrorist group rather than a standing army. They're compared to locusts, and that comparison would be in terms of sheer number. There were so many of them, it said that they were beyond counting. Also a reference to how locusts waste away the land. And when these guys didn't travel light, and there were so many of them, I mean, they just wasted away everything in their path. 
That's why Gideon is in the wine press rather than being out on the road, because normally you would beat the wheat out in the road. So this scene is very descriptive of how bad it was to live under this oppression. <coughs> Imagine you had to keep your garden in the basement under sun lamps because you couldn't go outside to do it because somebody would just destroy it. Imagine you couldn't go outside at night. The raiding bands left you and all your neighbors destitute. This is what Israel is facing. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds? that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the land of hand of Midian. That this angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon is evidence of God's faithfulness toward his people. <clears throat> it was not apparent to Gideon that he was talking to an angel of the Lord. In fact, it's not always understood even by the reader who Gideon is talking to at various times. But this angel of the Lord is bringing good news, great news to Gideon. Throughout, throughout the Old Testament, the, me the message, the Lord is with you, seems to coincide with the idea of have no fear, be not dismayed. Why? Because... As your God, he will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you. That's what it says in Isaiah 41. Now, about calling Gideon a mighty man of valor, this seems to me more prophetic than factual. This is something that the Lord is going to work into Gideon over time. And keeping in mind that God's intent is to... Um, keep the focus and glory on himself rather than allow Israel to receive any glory. He's probably not going after a seasoned man of war. Now we can understand that the circumstances must have been overwhelming. The suffering, the fear, the lack. This is the lens through which they viewed everything around them. That's the question. Is the Lord really with us? Is he really? How could things be so bad if that were true? Sure, we've heard of the wonderful deeds our fathers recounted. But what happened in the last seven years? Can he do it again? Will he do it again, considering our sin? And if it's likely we're going to fall in sin again, why would he just keep on saving us? You ever think that? I have. Notice, too, from Gideon's perspective, he said the Lord has forsaken them and given them into the hand of Midian. And he seems to miss here the idea that Israel first disobeyed. And the Lord really needed to tighten them up. The dictionary definition of forsake is to quit or leave entirely. 
God is doing just the opposite here. He is, as, he is just as involved with Israel as he has always been. He's just as involved even in the midst of their affliction. Now, I just love the way the Lord responds to Gideon. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? God didn't berate him. He could have said, Seriously? You think I haven't done anything for you? He didn't run down the list of all the things he had done. He didn't say, fine, if you want to skip your blessing, I'll go find somebody else. What I see here is a shepherd. Reaching down to a frightened, lost sheep. He understands his fear. He understands his, his lack of trust. But he's not letting him off the hook. You know, there have been times when I thought, I'm good with my growth so far. I look pretty good compared to some other people. You know, maybe you come back to me next year and we'll work on some things. But no, that's not how God works. God is determined to move us in the, in the direction that he's taking us. And so he simply, he doesn't address the issues that Gideon raised. He simply says, the almighty God is with you. This is the strength you need to go and save Israel. It's you I'm sending. Go. Verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now I see multiple ways you can ask God how something is going to be done. One is the how I call how never. This means my mouth is saying how can this be done, but I know you won't have an answer because it can never be done. The other one is how in detail. So it's you need to tell me all the things that are going to happen for the next two days or two weeks or two months. You need to give me every detail. You need to know, tell me all the people who are going to play a part. Then I'll buy into what you're telling me. Now, I think the questioner in this case would try to tear apart all those details and end up where the first person is saying it can't happen. So... The best option is somewhere in the middle, a simple how that says, I don't see it, but I'm listening and I'm willing. Verse 
still Gideon seems to be looking hard at his circumstances. He's looking with physical eyes rather than spiritual, perhaps. I mean, there's always larger tribes, greater clans, better houses. Someone is always taller, faster, stronger, smarter, more politically savvy, better trained, better connected, more confident, more liked. You know, why don't you go ask one of them? Now remember, too, that Manasseh was uh, Joseph's firstborn. And at the time when Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, he crossed his arms. And he put his right hand on Ephraim. And when Joseph went to correct him, he said, no, the younger is going to be greater than the older. So, um, you know, Gideon has a point in, in talking about how that they are the least. But choosing the least is, is nothing new to God. Because if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, it reads as follows. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Ah, uh, um, if you look over there, some of you may remember when I was in empty space, covered by a curtain, and uh, quite a few church members got together and, and built up a nice new storage space. So imagine the mayor of Chicago saying, hey, I like that. I want you guys to make Chicago the home of the tallest building in the world, the most state-of-the-art building in the world. What are you saying? You're not going for it? It sounds crazy. We are woefully inadequate for such a job. So yes, he's the least. They're the least. But how is that relevant? God is with you. And perhaps God just smiles and says, you're right, Gideon. You're the last person I should pick. That's what makes this plan so great. <laughs> I got the Midianites right where I want them. They're large. They're running roughshod over everything in Israel. I don't take you and a small force. What's the message here? Where you are woefully inadequate, God is more than adequate. May I repeat that? Where you are woefully inadequate, God is more than adequate. So I think Gideon is starting to turn a corner as I look at verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. 
Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. I see a balance here in Gideon's response. His faith is growing towards that mighty man of valor the angel spoke about at first. He isn't demanding a sign, but he also isn't too proud to ask for help where it's needed. Now the message seems to be clearing up. God is with us to deliver Israel. God is with me to lead the charge. This is an awesome favor being shown to Gideon. Now, if he stands up in this role, is he self-seeking? Is he being presumptuous? Will others think he's just trying to make a name for himself? Can he even trust his own mind right now? Have you ever been there? <clears throat> so he asked for a sign. I want to make sure this is God's agenda. Now, again, it's not clear to Gideon who he is talking to. So when he goes to make a present, part of it could be that he's being hospitable, which was the normal custom of the day. Uh, and part of it could be a test. You know, how will my guest receive this present? Will he sit down and eat with me, or will he bring fire and burn it up? Now the response was, I will stay till you return. Now I skipped over this quite a few times, not really thinking about this particular response. And I'm, I'm seem to be poked by the attentiveness of this. I mean, he's not like rushing off, like, come on, Gideon, let's get this going so I can go on and do my other things. He seems to be very attentive, and he's working with Gideon. And um, I, It made me think of a discussion I had with a group of people, and we talked about how God loves his church. Okay, God loves his people. And then someone brought up the idea that, yeah, I really get that, but what I never really got was that God loves me. And there were other people in the group that echoed that, like, yeah, it's that he can actually love me, an individual, and I think he's showing his love, not only for Israel, but for Gideon, and the way he is so attentive and, and deals with Gideon, where he is. Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meal he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Just love that simple act of obedience. No questions, no comments. Like, okay. <laughs> Verse 21, then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. 
and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophir, which belongs to the Abizarites. So the fire means acceptance. That's good. The fire also means you've just seen the angel of the Lord face to face. That's bad. Because <laughs> no one can see the face of God and live. But then you hear the, the Lord's words. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. His offering has been accepted. He has found favor. I think Gideon has grown up right before our eyes. He went from, is the Lord with us? To, the Lord is peace. I think that's quite a journey. Don't you want to go on that kind of journey? Although there is something that's bothersome. And that's that Gideon ended poorly. The riches from the conquest soon became a snare to Gideon and his family. And that's the bad news. I don't want that. But what gives me hope is Christ. He offers me peace. I don't have to seek for it out in the world. John 14, 27 tells me, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now Gideon was an everyday man who chose to do, who God chose to do a great thing in Israel. He was not perfect. He was just like all of Israel going through ups and downs. But in God's presence, he went from, is God with us, to the Lord is peace. So what do we have to keep us from slipping back like Gideon did? We have Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let me wrap this up. We all have struggles. There's sin in the world. We have our own sin. We may struggle with being faithful in certain areas. Others sin against us. This can shake our peace. Why don't you ask God to work into your heart the fact that he remains faithful, no matter what. Ask him to help you cling to the fact that he is with you at all times. Ask him to overwhelm you with his peace and use you 
in spite of any of your shortcomings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you that through it, you can work into our hearts the truth that you are faithful. You are with us, and because of that, we need not fear anyone or any circumstance. Would you let this truth be such a part of us that in every circumstance we remember that Christ, in Christ we have peace? Make us to trust that Christ, the perfecter of our faith, is working in every moment to make us more like him. Cause us to be open to the task you call us to, not doubting, not resisting, but willing to serve as you lead us. Where we are woefully inadequate, Lord, help us to know you are more than adequate. And we trust your faithfulness in being with the check team as they minister and show people the light of, of Christ. And we trust that you will grant them a safe trip home. And we ask all these things in the matchless name of your son. Amen.